0: It is Canucks Hour here on Sportsnet 650. I am Jamie Dodd. My co-host is Canucks insider Thomas Drance, who also covers the team at The Athletic. Canucks Hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment, your Kubota all-star team, avenue-machinery.ca, douglaslakeequipment.com. Once again, I am coming to you live from the Kintec studio, Kintec Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 1,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at kintech dot net Drancer is live on location again at UBC where the Canucks are scheduled to hit the ice in about an hour at eleven o'clock as they continue training camp uh, and they continue uh, their preseason on ice activities so we'll have more so about that later now, in jamie, the show
1: for now jamie yeah jamie for now i'm at I'm live on location at the UBC Thunderbirds uh, women's team practice well there you go and uh and they're shaping up well they're looking good
0: so if, maybe we'll do, we'll do a little bit of that coverage if there's anything that really yeah. catches your eye about I'll, the power play formation the, or anything yeah the cap just let, implications let.
1: <laughs> I'll, I'll break down the cap implications of a of a player's departure from practice live yeah
0: Go get some audio from the coach when they're done, too, are. all right? <laughs> Make yourself useful up there. Um, but, uh, look, 650-650 is the Dunbar-Lumber text line. We're going to talk lots more hockey throughout the course of the show. Brendan Batchelor is going to join us on the line at 1030. But, obviously, we do have to start with the uh, very serious allegations of abuse made against Canucks owner Francesco Aquilini uh, in B.C. Supreme Court on Tuesday this is per reporting at Post Media and the CBC. Uh, I'll lay out kind of the facts that they have reported them, what we know here. So yesterday, four adult children of the Canucks owner, Francesco Aquilini, uh, four children of him and his ex-wife, Talia Aquilini, they made allegations of physical and psychological abuse uh, in the context of a dispute over continued child support payments for the three of the children. And again, these are allegations leveled at their father, Francesco Aquilini. Uh, The allegations were made via affidavits signed by the children. Now, these affidavits weren't new yesterday, as I understand it, based on the reporting. Uh, They've actually, these signed documents were actually delivered to Francesco Aquilini, I believe, in January 2021. Now, uh, these are obviously very, very serious. Uh, They're they're disturbing allegations to read them. They're made on the record in court proceedings. Some of the relevant parties have responded. I, I will read the uh, the statement on behalf of Canucks chairman Francesco Aquilini, which you can find on Drancer's Twitter feed as well. And it is, Francesco Aquilini categorically denies and is outraged by the accusation made by his ex-wife, Talia, in family court today that he has ever abused his children. The couple were divorced and reached a settlement in 2013. Mr. Aquilini has met and will continue to meet any child support obligations required by the law. But he has concerns about the veracity of the information provided in support of financial demands. It is unfortunate that allegations without merit are brought forward for a collateral purpose. He will have nothing further to say at this time as the matter is before the court. So that's a statement from Francesco Accolini, again, categorically denying the allegations, calling them without merit as well. This morning, the NHL released a statement, and here's the statement from the league. We are aware of the allegations that have been made in family court proceeding in Vancouver. And have been in touch with Matt, Mr. Aquilini and his lawyers regarding same. Clearly, the parties have been involved in a most contentious divorce. Mr. Aquilini has advised us that he has categorically denied, that he categorically denies the allegations. We plan to continue to monitor the situation, and if necessary, we'll respond as we learn more as events unfold. And to answer the, the statement from the NHL towards the end there. I I think it captures kind of where you and I stand as well, right? We're aware of the allegations. They're extremely serious. We're also aware that they are just allegations at this point. They have not been proven in court. They are denied by Francesco Aquilini. And as the NHL says, this is a situation that everybody is going to be continuing to monitor and and seeing what happens as as other events unfold.
1: Yep. And, you know, it's a very serious matter, right? Family violence, uh, of course is something we take very seriously, something that we've seen leagues take very seriously over the course of the past five to 10 years as well. Um, you know, allegations made via signed affidavit under, under penalty of perjury by one's children, yeah, that's something that absolutely bears further monitoring here, and, and we will do so. Uh, as, as we transition here though, I do want to just apprise our listeners, anyone who's listening who maybe is dealing with anything like this at home, um, of some resources that you can find at canada.ca these are national resources that anyone affected at the moment by family violence can utilize to um, you know deal with those or get professional help professional counseling in dealing with these issues Uh, there's the kids help phone that number is 1-800-668-6868 available to all young canadians between the ages of 5 and 29 seeking 24-hour confidential and anonymous care with professional counselors. There's the Hope for Wellness 24-7 helpline. That's 1-855-242-3310. That's available to all Indigenous people across Canada seeking immediate crisis intervention. There's also the Child Help National Child Abuse 24-7 hotline. Uh, They offer multilingual services. That's 1-800-422-4453. And they can help with finding the contact information of the child protection services in your area.
0: Uh, thank you, Dranser. I, I think I appreciate. I, well, I know I appreciate it a lot, and I'm sure our listeners appreciate it as well. And just before we move on, you know. We are going to continue to monitor this as there are developments, whether it's today, whether it's down the road, we will continue to cover it. We're going to move on now just simply because it is such a serious matter. You know, this is not a topic for debate. This is not a conversation starter. This is something that pertains to the Canucks and is extremely serious. And so we have to mention it and we have to cover it and we will cover it. But it's also not something to to dwell on and turn into fodder. Uh, for debate and conversation right now so uh, we're going to thread that needle right where we're not going to ignore the story we're not going to hide from it we're not going to run from it uh, but we're also going to do our very very best to handle it respectfully uh, intelligently uh, and and with the appropriate weight that it deserves so again you will hear future developments as they occur we will cover it but for right now that's the situation as we understand it uh, and we will continue to see where it goes. It's Canucks Hour here on Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd and Thomas Drance are your hosts. There's never an easy way to transition from a story like that back to uh, the frivolity that we normally discuss and talk about here on the show Drance, but we'll do our best to move on and get back to uh, what we typically talk about. It is Canucks Hour. We are focused on the Canucks as a hockey team and you're out there getting ready to, uh, to, to watch the, the Canucks practice which, again, we'll get going at 11 at UBC. So we can get into some of the the on-ice storylines and what we're watching for a little bit later. But there was some interesting off-ice league-wide reporting uh, from Elliot Friedman, Sportsnet's NHL Insider and 32 Thoughts uh, podcast host as well that obviously will have major implications for every team around the NHL and and specifically for the Canucks as well. And that was Elliot Friedman reporting on some very, very early Very preliminary projections for the future of the league salary cap. And we all know, we've heard it over and over and over again. We have been in a flat cap world because of the pandemic for a while now. We've just started to see modest increases come back to the salary cap. It's at $82.5 for this season. According to Friedman's, again, very early, very preliminary projections. This is not a a fact or, or written in stone by any stretch. But according to those projections, next season... They're anticipating an $83.5 million salary cap the following season. So this will be the 20 for the 2024-25 season. uh, They're projecting a jump into the 87.5 to $88 million range. And then the season after that in 2025 and 2026, uh, projecting a cap in the neighborhood of 92 million. So that's a jump of almost $10 million over the course of about four seasons. Again, should these very preliminary projections come to pass which as we all know as we've all learned very well to answer there's a lot of uncertainty uh, in the world right now so who knows if this will actually be where it goes
1: yeah i mean the nhl projected what was it a five to eight million dollar cap rise on fatefully on like march 8th 2020 right 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 at the port of governor's meeting that occurred immediately prior to the pandemic and i remember writing at the time you know no NHL team in the league is going to actually amend their own far more conservative cap projection based off of this, because who knows, you could have uh, some sort of wild world event, like a revenue-sapping pandemic Uh that impacts things, right? I wrote that, I think, March 8th, 2020, so I'll say it again. And, you know, we, we don't know, and things are particularly interesting, I think, from a league perspective, going into the next 12 months, just as they are for the rest of us, right? Uh, Between inflation, you know, uh, continued war uh, in Europe, um, a a variety of of other sort of issues that could crop up. You never know what's gonna happen with another VOC. Um, And then then to sort of make matters even more sticky, I don't know if you saw this New York Post report last week about Mm -hmm. Bally Sports and the potential uh, that they may end up filing for bankruptcy and that in fact the NHL the NBA and and Major League Baseball in partnership might even consider being a purchaser of that property. But for uh, Bally Sports is the local, the regional rights holder for, I think, 12 teams. So a pretty significant chunk of the league. And in some of those markets, that regional broadcast deal is worth 30% annual revenue, like 30 plus percent of annual revenue. Um, You know, if there's insolvency issues there, that could take a huge bite out of things. So good news you love to see the nhl's revenues beginning to rebound um it's great news for the players too who are looking at two more seasons of sort of artificially restrained uh income as they pay off their debt from those sort of two pandemic seasons um but you know i think the whole thing has to be taken with a grain of salt particularly mm-hmm. given where the world is at globally from, from a financial perspective. Uh, where the television industry is in the United States in particular. And, you know, be cautious. Like, I don't think a team should be budgeting now for this huge, you know, 85 million and then 92 million by 2027 sort of projection. No team should be looking at that and saying that's where we're at. Uh, They can maybe maybe project a little bit with a little bit more confidence a rise beyond 1 million. in you know not this season not next season but the season after uh but i i wouldn't go further than that and i think very few teams you know thinking responsibly about the space available to them will and you know that it's
0: the point about the uncertainty is a really good one because we got so used to the nhl cap just constantly going up and and rising significantly over a period of you know five ten years it can be hard to kind of adjust our frame of reference for how it might go but We all know we're living in a different world. We're living in different circumstances right now. So you have to factor in a significant amount of uncertainty when we're talking about these salary cap projections.
1: The other thing, the other point I want to make. Sorry, can I just jump in and quickly note? Like, it's not just the pandemic, right? Like, I remember when the Canucks in 2015 signed Dorset and Spisa. And there was uh, one of my colleagues at Canucks Army at the time, a gentleman named Cam Lawrence said, They've misanticipated the market because they are failing to factor in the extent to which the cap not rising because of the value of the Canadian dollar, which had taken a hit over the eight months prior, uh, is going to flatten the cap and and cause free agent values to uh, be far more minimal than than these market values represent. And that exact exactly that played out. Exactly that played out. So, I mean, everything from currency fluctuations well, was, and, to, and, and to answer, we, interest rates. Yeah, we've all had to learn this. and talk a
0: lot more about inflation and interest rates and, and the the kind of uncertain uh, impact that's going to have on everyone's pocketbooks and the economy. Yep. So, yeah, it's, it's the pandemic, but it's also just the overall economic situation, which I think it's fair to say. Like, yes, as you point out, there's been uncertainties in the past, but I, I think we're in a... I think it's fair to say I'm not an economics major. I'm not an economist or anything like that. But I think it's fair to say there's a greater degree of economic uncertainty now than we are typically used to seeing, at least as it relates for sure. to the NHL, right? A- so Absolutely. Yeah, so you got to take them with a grain of salt. The other thing I'll say, though, is even if you thought these were really rock-solid projections for where the cap is going, you know, I think sometimes the, the salary cap going up and the flat cap ending, it almost has this kind of, like, talismanic quality for fans, right, where it's like, well, the salary cap will go up and then all our problems will be solved, right? All our salary cap issues will go away because we'll start getting all this space and the salaries will look really reasonable and, you know, we'll be able to, to fill all the holes on our roster. And I'm not just talking about Canucks fans. I'm talking about hockey fans across the league. But the thing is, for sure, you know, salary cap going up, the salary cap going up, it doesn't just affect your team, right? It goes up for every other team. And that means player salaries start to get driven up, right? And all of a sudden, all of that extra salary cap space uh, that, that may come into the league or may not, it can get taken up in a big, big hurry uh, because of that salary inflation. Because all of a sudden, there's more, team bi- more teams bidding uh, and more comfortable bidding at a higher price for free agents that are on the market. So I, I think it should be, one, taken with a grain of salt. And two, for a team that is in the cap crunch, like the Canucks, yes, it can help. It, it certainly has the potential to open up some interesting possibilities for them that maybe weren't there in this summer, but it's not a silver bullet, right? It's not the case where, oh, okay, well, the cap went up, you know, $10 million over three seasons. Uh, we're on easy street now. All our problems are solved. It's still going to be a very difficult situation to navigate for the Canucks for other teams around the league, too.
1: Yeah, the I mean, there's an awful lot to unpack there. I think you're dead on. The one thing about the cap going up, right, is that the cap going up doesn't make necessarily your inefficient contract less arduous right because it's a competitive environment it's an efficiency contest between 32 member clubs so your inefficient contract isn't less inefficient because the salary cap has gone up it's and that's because a team's advantage from being efficiently positioned cap wise is sharper (laughs) they have more space even more than they would have expected so it sort of offsets, like obviously, you know, a, a bad contract is less bad with when the cap space or when the overall upper limit is higher, but that doesn't offset the advantage that your opponents get from minding their books more carefully. Right. So that's sort of a, a key thing. Uh, the other thing to remember here is that the cap rising in other sports, and we've seen this, creates inflationary pressure. Right. Mm-hmm. The name, Timo, the name, the name Timofey Mozgov is the one to keep in mind here. Right. It's not Kevin Durant it's going all, to the... Always top of mind for me,
0: Durant. As he
1: mom, should be. As he should be, right? Like So when the, when the NBA got the new broadcast ra- um, deal, right? They decided not to smooth out the, the rise in the cap. So the cap rised enough that the Golden State Warriors were able to add Kevin Durant. They made four straight finals, right? I mean, it, it was a tectonic shift in the league's balance of power. So that can happen. That's the sexy story we all wanna read about and hear about and talk about and project for our favorite team. But the flip side of this is what happens when there's a lot more cap space in the system mm-hmm. and one team strikes out on everybody, which happened to the Los Angeles Lakers when they failed to get Kevin Durant that very same summer. Left with a wash of cap space, they signed Timofey Mozgov, a, a centerman, like, just like a classic backup centerman. Totally fine, no, nothing wrong with him. But he got paid at a rate that was, like, you know, superstar level six months prior, right? The inflationary pressure of the elevated sort of um, upper limit created a situation where mediocre players were subject to intense inflationary pressure on their salaries. And that's coming here, too. Like, someone is going to be the NHL's team of Timofei Mozgov, right? Some guy who's, like, a third liner or middle six forward or is going to is going to sign a nine million dollar contract like that's happening that's going to come and there's going to be some team that's left scrambling that makes that mistake Um, additionally you're going to see you know i mean austin matthew's contract when and and the expiry of that deal could not be more perfect for oh my goodness right i mean there's a real chance that he signs a contract that has almost no relationship with the deals that have come before it including mcdavid and mckinnon Right. I mean, there there's a world where, you know, in, in a cap environment where the caps in the mid 80s or even the high 80s, um, you know, Austin Matthews's valuation is 15 million plus on average. At least, I, that might be conservative, to be totally honest with you uh, on a similar time frame from a Canucks perspective, Elias Pettersson, right? Vasily Podkolzin. And then the next year with the cap going up even higher, Brock Besser. So there's some Canucks players that are very well positioned and I'm sure will, uh, you know, their their camps will greet this news with some cautious optimism but optimism nonetheless and just to kind of um your point about the
0: the cap the massive cap spike in the nba and how it played out well to tie the the kevin durant to the warriors thing to something you said earlier which is yeah a cap spike can help teams that are in cap problems right that have cap troubles but it can also really benefit teams uh, that are in a really good cap position. You know, the Warriors were able to sign Kevin Durant to that deal, not just because of the cap spike, but also because they happen to have, you know, a true generational all-time talent in Steph Curry signed to a way below market deal because of somehow the, the injuries early in his career had played out, right? So they were able to not just reap the benefits of the cap spike, but also the fact uh, that they were, were paying Steph Curry at a, a bargain rate relative to what he was actually worth in the NBA, so that goes to your point, right? You you can actually, you know, the comparison would have been he's on the big deal now, but like if the cap had started going up when when the ABS still had Nathan McKinnon on the, in the incredible bargain deal, right? Then you're
1: you're saying, holy cow, oh, you're really, cooking with oil, yeah, you're really well, in like, business now, and and I mean, what's a team like? Project what's a team that could benefit from that, right? I mean. You know, you look at New Jersey having locked up Jack Hughes long-term, right? Like, that to me is a prime example. Like, Jack Hughes, say Jack Hughes breaks out and is a top 10, top 15 NHL player, which, by the way, he was for stretches in the back half of the year, right? I mean, we're not talking about a major breakout to get him to that level. He just needs to sort of sustain what he's done in parts of the last two seasons over a full 82 and stay relatively healthy, right? I mean, that's, that's all Jack Hughes needs to do. He's incredible. And... He's a, he's long term. He's signed long term at eight million, right? Like, what what does that deal? If you they, you have a top ten player making eight million, you know, six years from now, and the cap's over a hundred, I mean, that's the equivalent in the flat cap era of of paying you know a, a Nathan McKinnon seven million, seven eight seven and a half million. So that's um, that's a big deal. Like that's a big deal, and and sort of speaks to, you know, one issue for for the. Canucks in terms of what it looks like for this particular organization if the flat cap or if the cap rises, and that is, you know, they didn't lock in long-term cost certainty with their core, right? Like, the Quinn Hughes deal is going to be a massive steal in, in, a, in a world where the cap is rising exorbitantly Y-O-Y. Pedersen's situation, though, is even murkier as a result. So... You know, it, it's sort of too bad. The teams that are going to benefit the most, the team that's most likely to be the golden state of of, a, of the post-flat cap era, I mean, it's going to be one of those teams that really sort of rolled the dice locking up guys. Uh, Thatcher Demko, we talked about his contract yesterday. That's another really good example. Uh, you know, Spencer Martin, for example, could expire in two years. With what we saw happen with backup goaltenders, right? Is there a world where Martin is a 9 20 goaltender in 30 games over the next two seasons and becomes a $3 million player, like for sure. And if that happens, you know, Martin's a $3 million player and Demko's a $5 million (laughs) player for two more years. I mean, that just goes to show you the advantages of sort of using the cap the flat cap in particular to a team's benefit. The Canucks declined to do it with Elias Pedersen. And to me, that's sort of the big story to watch here in terms of how the flat cap could impact this team or the end of the flat cap era, excuse me, could impact this team long term.
0: Yeah, and the other thing is, and we got to take a break here. We're going to talk to Batch on the other side. But the, the really interesting thing I find about this is, you know, it's not just future, right? Like the Canucks are involved in negotiations with a key player right now in Bo Horvat. And the majority of that contract that he signs, whether it's with the Canucks, whether it's somewhere else, the majority of that contract is going to happen in this evolving salary cap world. And there's the uncertainty to take into consideration. There's the potential for a big spike a consi- to take into consideration. But it, it really does add a, a fascinating layer of complexity to that situation as well. Again, maybe we'll try to get into that a little bit later on the show. But joining us next, he is the voice of the Canucks here on Sportsnet 650. Our guy, Brendan Bachelor. That's coming up next right here on Canucks Hour. back to Canucks Hour here on Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd and Canucks insider Thomas Drantz here. Canucks Hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment. Your Kubota All-Star team. Avenue AvenueMachinery.ca DouglasLakeEquipment.com uh, I'm live from the Kintec studio. Drantzer is on location at UBC and uh, Drantzer, I- I'm happy to report that I've figured out the throat clearing issue that plagued us that plagued me on the show yesterday. I'm doing it not just from the the normal Kintech studio here uh, at 650 headquarters, but we're in kind of a side temporary one while we do some renos on the main one, and, and as it turns out, I have no control over my mic whatsoever here. Even if I turn it off and, and pot ah. the volume all the way down, uh, everything I do still comes through loud and clear. So in retrospect, Tough. in retrospect, probably I got off pretty easy. That throat clearing was the only thing that made it on to the area. No there. kidding, no kidding. That could have been very dangerous. That could have been very
1: bad. Considering the way that you behave off there. No, <laughs> yes. I'm just kidding. Of course, I'm just kidding. Um, how's the music on my end, though? I was gonna I no say it sounds great. <laughs> it sounds
0: yeah. great. It sounds like a party I mean, happening out there.
1: They're uh, they're playing an area game, like a small area game at center ice, and they just started blaring music. Uh, I really enjoyed uh, sort of watching the two-on-two area game to Shania Twain's. That don't impress me much. That looked that looked like a blast. Like this is what hockey should be about. Uh, just you know. Trying to score goals with your friends and listening to country music. Let's go. Uh,
0: It sounds fun. And uh, I I know our our next guest uh, will appreciate it as well. He is the voice of the Canucks here on Sportsnet 650. Our guy, Brendan Batchelor. Batch, are you uh, you a Shania Twain fan?
2: Who isn't? (laughs) Obviously. Yes, that was a silly
0: silly question on my part. uh, Because as as you (laughs) said, who isn't a Shania Twain fan?
2: And when it's being used for uh, background music to small area games on the ice, then it's even better.
0: So, Batch, you know, it's uh, it's kind of interesting how the early part of training camp and preseason has unfolded here for the Canucks because we talked so much about, you know, the biggest area of improvement for this team has been their depth up front. They didn't touch the blue line, but they, they made some additions uh, to the forward group and they figured to have really impressive depth. And now all of a sudden, Brock Bester's had surgery on his hand. Uh, Ilya Mikheyev is week to week. What's your reaction just to the, the spate of injuries that has already befallen the Canucks here?
2: Yeah, well, that depth is being tested immediately, right? Which, um, you know, we didn't expect, but at the same time, we know that these things happen, right? Like, I can remember we were up in, in Whistler for training camp having a conversation about where Niels Hoaglander was going to fit in, and I think I said, well, inevitably someone will get hurt between now and the start of the year and it won't be a problem for them in terms of figuring out where he's going to play uh it is unfortunate that there have been multiple injuries now um you know whether it be mckayev or besser or you know dermot uh leaving practice yesterday so you know you you don't want them to pile up to this degree before the start of the season but it's just another one of those things that are out of your control and uh, you know, that added depth is already being tested when you see a guy like Curtis Lazar who was brought in to play a fourth-line role playing in, in your top-nine forward group. And, um, you know, Bruce Boudreau I think, said the right things yesterday, talking about how they had some of these issues down the stretch last year and still found a way to win games. And they're going to have to find a way to do it going into the year anyway, although hopefully they're not missing Besser and Bekeyev for too much time to start the year is
0: is Niels Hoaglander clearly the guy who stands to kind of benefit the most from this and look obviously you you don't you know you don't want to spin these injuries as a good thing for any individual player but You know, he came into training camp and impressed management, impressed the coaching staff, but it was still kind of going to be hard to find a spot for him in an offensive oriented role to start the season. And now all of a sudden, you know, he was skating on a line with Elias Pettersson. It looks like he might get the chance to to really show what he can do and show how he can contribute offensively early in the season.
2: Well, yeah, and that makes a ton of sense because in terms of the pieces they already had penciled in in their top nine, the next best offensive threat, I mean, you could argue he's a better offensive threat than some of the guys they already had penciled in in their top nine anyway, but you know, it's obvious that if they have an injury, uh, Hoaglander's going to go in, and, and to me, the more interesting conversation around this will come when guys get back from injury because if Hoaglander takes the most, of this opportunity, and seeing so, you know, for example, does really well on a line with Kuzmenko and Pedersen, uh, and and they like that line and they want to keep it together even when McCabe is healthy. What does that mean in terms of who bumps down the lineup, who gets a more diminished role than maybe they were expecting coming into the year? And that's a really good problem to have. And again, you know, much like talking about Hoaglander coming into training camp, it's a problem they may not have to face because inevitably someone else may get hurt uh, before McCann gets back into the lineup or Besser gets back into the lineup anyway. You know, this is always a a game of musical chairs, it feels like. And over the last few years, it's been very rare. Canucks have been completely healthy and had every player available to them at the same time. Um, So, you know, again, it comes back to that depth and the fact that Hoaglander committed himself over the off season, came into camp motivated, did well in the fitness testing, and fully deserves this opportunity he's being given now. He's a great thing for the Canucks, and, and you know hopefully it's something not just with Hoaglander, but with this entire group and the moves they made in the offseason that will allow them to withstand injuries to their forward group better than they have in seasons past.
1: Batch... Will you explain for the fans who maybe don't understand why is Tanner Pearson impossible to dislodge from this team's top six?
2: <laughs> well, you know he. We were talking about this yesterday. He's a pros pro, isn't he? Right, like he, he's maybe not the flashiest player you'll find. He's not going to score a ton of goals, right? Like you know he he's not one of the leading scorers on the team every year. But what he is is maybe their most consistent forward or certainly in that conversation, right? Like, he comes into to camp in great shape. You know, the, the bag skate they did yesterday, you know, he's cruising through it. He looks fine. He's reliable. And for NHL head coaches, reliability is the best asset you can have as a player if you're not going to be an elite point producer or someone that you know, like an Elias Patterson, like, a, you know, the, the top players around the league. Coaches want guys they can depend on that can play up the lineup, that can play down the lineup, that you can put out in a matchup role, that you can trust on special teams. And Tanner Pearson ticks all of those boxes. Is he the fastest player you're going to find? Certainly not. Is he the, the biggest point producer you're going to find? No. But you know what you're going to get from him every single night He's good on the walls. He's able to grind down low and help you create offense. And, you know, until he gets to a point in his career where Father Time catches up with him and he's not able to do that to the degree that we've seen, he's going to be a staple on NHL rosters. and He's going to be a staple with this Canucks group, and it's exactly why he's given an opportunity on the first line, I guess if we're going to call it that, uh, with Miller and Besser before he was hurt, because he is a guy that... You know what you get from him every single night, and you can't say that about, you know, plenty of other guys on this roster.
1: You know, you you brought up an interesting thing, which is this club is not going to talk about having a first, a second, or a third line, right? That's just not we're not gonna hear it. There's too much respect for these centermen. But doesn't it speak volumes if one line gets Connor Garland, one line gets Niels Hoaglander, and one line gets Curtis Lazar about how we should view you know the calibration and in fact the order of these lines
2: i think so and you know it may be more of an identity conversation rather than a a, you know an order conversation where you know you know the kind of player that Bo horvat is and and maybe you think a player like lazar who has checking ability makes more sense to fit in with horvat especially if you kind of want to use that in in a matchup role, although uh, you know we've seen Horvat used in matchups in years past. I don't know if that's going to be the way that Bruce Boudreau approaches this season. It may be the Miller line that gets a lot more of those tough minutes, um, and and we know Boudreau is much less of a, a hard matching head coach than Travis Green was anyway. So um, you know it's not not going to be to the same degree that we saw in previous seasons, but. You know, I think that's fair to say that, that, you know, whether you want to number them one, two, three, or however you want to look at, at, at it, the Miller line is the number one line. I think that's very clear. The Pedersen line is a more offensively geared line. That's why they get a player like Hoaglander and, and those on the other side is because they are going to be expected to score. But whether you want to call them the number two line or not, I think is an interesting debate because that could also be the line that he tries to get some favorable matchups with to allow a guy like Kuzmenko to, you know, break into the NHL and produce a bit of offense and feel good about himself early on. Because we've heard Boudreaux talk about the fact that, um, you know, in terms of using his centers in matchup roles, it's going to depend who their wingers are. And he specifically talked about. You know he would use Pedersen in a matchup role, but probably not if Kuznetsov goes on his wing, just because that's not the the best best implementation of his skill set, especially as a guy that's going to have to learn the NHL game and, and learn what it takes to play night in and night out and, and be able to contribute not just offensively, but in his own end of the rink as well. So, you know, it, it's a hint, and you know Lazar being on that line with Horvat, I think probably does make it the third line in in most people's eyes. But, you know, in in terms of ice time, it may not end up being that way once we get into the regular season. It's going to be interesting to see.
0: Uh, In conversation with Brendan Batchel, the voice of the Canucks, here on Sportsnet 650, it's Canucks hour. And, you know, Batch, the blue. I find the blue line situation for the Canucks fascinating because we all know they weren't able to upgrade the talent on the blue line over the summer. But having said that, there's lots of plausible NHL pieces that they still have to choose from. And I was really curious to see, okay, what's the pecking order? What's the hierarchy on the blue line look like after Quinn Hughes and OEL and Tyler Myers? And, and I kind of feel like I don't really have a any more clarity on who they want in the lineup, you know, w- which pairings they want to play the most after the after that first pairing. We've seen them give Danny DeKaiser a really long look. You know, we're not really sure what to expect from Tucker Poolman. Are you as confused about the state of the blue line and what, what we should anticipate as I am at this point?
2: Yeah, I I think, to me, the biggest question is going to be ultimately the makeup of the second pairing, if you want to call it that, because it's pretty clear that they're committed to playing Hughes and OEL together, and they've really stuck with Jack Rathbone and Luke Shen quite a lot, and I can understand that, because Luke Shen had a great year last year playing with an offensive defenseman um, in Quinn Hughes, and, and... He's the guy that you probably would want to choose to bring along another offensive defenseman as he transitions into the NHL this year in Jack Rathbone. And, you know, I think it's pretty clear that they're, they're giving Rathbone a serious look if they haven't already penciled him, him in on the opening night roster based on the fact that we saw him working on the second power play unit with Oliver ekman Larson as two defensemen on that unit yesterday at practice. So, you know, I look at that second pairing, and you know Myers is going to be there, but do they see Dermott fitting in in that role? Do they think the Kaiser can come in and and provide what they're looking for in that spot? I personally don't see that being the way that this goes, but clearly they're exploring it, whether they're going to ultimately go that way or not because of the long look that they've given to Kaiser. I mean, you're right. What does that mean for Tucker Pullman? Like, are you already penciling him in as a seventh or eighth defenseman? And, you know, uh, I've heard you guys talk a lot about the situation with Kyle Burrows, whether they, you know, end up having to put him on waivers. And obviously these injuries could complicate, um, you know, their, their roster building plans in terms of what they want to do for uh, the roster to start the season and how they want to maximize their, their LTI. So, you know, there there are still plenty of questions on that blue line. And, and to me, it's really all about who's going to play with Tyler Myers ultimately. And I don't think we have a firm answer to that question yet, especially because we don't know what Travis Dermott's status is yeah. yet as well, right? Like if he ends up having some sort of injury that is going to sideline him for a while, then suddenly their options become more limited. And we talk about Holtlander taking advantage of an opportunity with, a, you know, a couple of injuries up front, you know, it, it makes you wonder who might take advantage of, of an injury on the back end if, indeed, Dermot does miss some time and whether that might be the opening that Danny DeKaiser needs to get brought in by this organization.
0: You know, I know we've only seen it really at, at scrimmages and, and some practices so far, Batch, but what have your early impressions been of, of Quinn Hughes and OEL playing together?
2: Well, I, I think the first scrimmage, it looked rough or at least it looked like it was going to be an adjustment for Quinn Hughes, the first scrimmage in Whistler, where you know, he, was, he was going back to what's built in, what's been innate for him over the last few years, which was he wanted to carry the puck up the left side. You know, when he was on the right side, and a puck went up the boards past him, he spun to the middle of the ice instead of towards the boards, because you spin to your left, that's where the boards would be on the other side. And there were just some some adjustments early on in that first scrimmage that made you wonder how he was going to continue to adapt playing on the right side. But I think with every practice day and every scrimmage we've seen him in thus far, uh, he's looked more and more comfortable there. And again, I I said it at the time when we were chatting on the air over the weekend in Whistler that if there's one guy that you would pick to figure it out in time, the start of the season, that guy is Quinn Hughes just because of how smart he is and, and you know, how quickly he has developed into, you know, their top defenseman very clearly and, and the kind of, uh, you know, understanding of the game that he has. It wasn't going to take him long to figure it out, and I think, you know, we've continued to see him grow in that regard, and it wouldn't surprise me at all if, you know, once he gets into preseason games, maybe we'll see some of too, uh, you know, I, I hope he and Ariel are in the game tomorrow night against Seattle so we can maybe learn a little bit more about that. Um, but, again, like if there's one guy that I think is going to figure it out and be fine and, and, you know, as much as the first scrimmage of training camp didn't look good by the time we get to the regular season, it won't even be a storyline, Quinn Hughes is that guy.
1: Brendan, do you think the potential – of a Travis Dermott injury changes anything in terms of playing Ekman, Larson and Quinn Hughes together. Could it?
2: Yeah, certainly it could. I mean, if, if you lose a guy on that left side, then you have to look at all of your options. And, you know, as much as I mentioned, it could be an opening for DeKaiser. If this organization decides that DeKaiser is not the answer, then what other answers are there? And, and, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty limited because of this blue line group that they've brought back that they haven't been able to add to. You know, maybe, maybe you can make a move or claim someone on waivers or something before the start of the year to, to help you, you know, fill that. But it wouldn't surprise me at all if, if Dermot's going to miss time. That's the easiest fix is you move Hughes shoes back to the left side, uh, you know, you put Myers with OER because they, you know, performed better than I think anybody uh, reasonably would have expected them to last year. And, you know, maybe you circle back to the, the right hand experiment once Dermot is healthy. But, um, you know, again, we, we don't really know Dermot's short and long term status. So that may not be an issue for them at all. But, you know, with, with the group they have on the back end and the fact that they weren't able to upgrade it or make any really notable changes to it in the offseason with the exception of Jack Rathbone likely making the team this year, whenever you have an injury, you have to look at at every option, and playing Clint Hughes on the left side as you did last year certainly has to be one of those options.
1: Batch, what do you draw from Jack Rathbone working with Power Play 2 yesterday? Signal or noise, does it mean something?
2: I think it does. I think it, I think it's a good indication that you know they're they're probably penciling him in to make this team already. And you know, you know, as I said, the fact that they're playing him with Luke Shen to me is is sort of um, you know with with an eye to the fact that that may be a good NHL pairing for them, where Shen, who played so well with Hughes last year, can help bring Rathbone along. Um, but that said. They have lots of offensive options to play on the power play, and you know we don't know the conversations that have gone on in terms of the way they look at that power play unit, but it's entirely possible that Rathbone wouldn't be there if both Besser and McCann were healthy. So, um, you know, I think we read into it a little bit, but, you know, I I wouldn't mark it in stone as saying that 100% means that, that Rathbone's on the roster, or at least in the top six for night one.
0: Hey, Batch, just before I let you go, you know, speaking of players who could step up and take advantage of an opening because of injury, uh, we saw the first special teams practice yesterday uh, with Power Play One getting a look, and it was Andre Kuzmenko sliding into that net front spot that we're used to seeing Brock Besser in. And, And look, we've all seen the highs of Kuzmenko's game and the really high skill level that he has. We've also seen some of the things that might take a little bit for him to adjust, but I look at it and, you know, for a player like him, who who has the ability to make plays and put the puck in the net, but is also adjusting uh, to the North American game, it might be a really good opportunity for him to build a little bit of confidence if he gets to work with you know four other guys on the power play who have been very very good at working together. Uh, it it yeah. seems like a kind of a, a a nice opportunity for him and for the team to ease him into NHL action a little bit.
2: Yeah, and I think that might be a good spot for him down low and around the net. You know, obviously he's got a pretty good shot, and and it takes away his ability to. To use that but at the same time with with the guys you play up high and, and Miller on the one side and Pedersen on the other side I, I wasn't really expecting him to unseat either of those guys although I might personally prefer to see Kuzmenko in a shooting position and maybe play Miller down low at the net front but you know he's going to have a chance to be around the net we saw you know he had a great chance in the preseason game in Vancouver Um, you know, the the split squad game against Calgary where he missed a tap in at the side of the net uh, because he was in the right spot. So he clearly has those offensive instincts. Um, You know, I think he probably has the playmaking ability to create from down low on that man advantage as well. So I think it says a lot about what they think of Kuzmenko, uh, where they think he could fit in, how high his offensive potential is that they're going to use him. On that top unit to start out. Whether it remains that way in the long term, I guess we'll have to wait and see. But, you know, he's on a win with Pedersen. He's on the top power play unit. He's going to be given every opportunity to succeed offensively with this group. And based on his skill set, you know, it's all there for him to, to have a good offensive start to the year.
0: Uh, Batch, we'll let you go. Uh, good luck beating uh, Drantz on
2: the lines today. Thank you very much. Yeah. Uh, Drantz, sir. While doing live radio, beat me yesterday. Big <laughs> season, season form already, and I've got to catch.
1: That's it. a three-pointer. That's should count yeah. as two, by the way. That's like that's like the equivalent of hitting a buzzer beater from downtown. You I
0: got think. a rebound. You got a rebound after that performance, Patch.
2: Yeah, exactly. You know, I went home and looked in the mirror, and, <laughs> and I've got to come back and give it one hundred ten percent today.
0: That's right. All right, thanks, buddy. We'll talk soon.
2: That was good. Thanks, man.
0: That is Brendan Batchelor, of course, the voice of the Canucks here on Sportsnet 650. He'll be calling the game, of course, tomorrow when they're back on the ice against the Kraken. And uh, yeah, Drancer, I mean, that was, you you were joking about it. It was going to be a disaster to have you out there doing the show. I think it's worked great. And and you got one over on Brendan Batchelor getting those lines out first, man. Big day for you.
1: Yeah, Tyler Myers, by the way, is stepping onto the ice. So that's one absentee from yesterday's practice who's now returned. And we'll see, we'll see what else. Uh, I haven't seen um, Travis Dermott clubs just filing onto the ice as the ice crew puts the finishing touches on the surface. So by the time we're back, uh, should have a good sense of, of who's here, who's absent and where the Canucks stand on, you know, what, I guess we're a week now into. Canucks training camp. Uh, we'll
0: take a quick break here. By the way, Canucks preseason coverage on Sportsnet 650 is brought to you by Black and Lee. Suiting up has never been easier with suits and tuxedos in a modern, wide range of colors, styles, and fits. Blackandlee.com. 650, 650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. The smart alternative is at Dunbar Lumber on Bridge Street in Ladner or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. We'll give you an update on the health and the availability of various Canucks players, uh, what they look like at practice today at UBC, where Drancer is live on location. That and lots more plus your text coming up. It's Canucks Hour, Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to Canucks Hour, the second Canucks Hour of the day, another extended edition here on the home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. I'm Jamie Dodd. My co host is Canucks Insider Thomas Strantz. I am coming to you live from the Kintech studio, Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 1,500 five star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech. Drancer is live on location again at Canucks practice at UBC, where I understand Drancer Canucks uh, players are filtering onto the ice as we speak, or at least are warming up on the ice as we speak.
1: Yeah, I'm not really sure what's happening. There's just a bunch of milling about um, there must be something. Ah, there you go. Bruce Boudreau just blew the whistle. Uh, only see eight defensemen. Tyler Myers is back, which means uh, no Travis Dermott. I uh, want to just be careful to make sure that that's correct, but I'm pretty confident it is. Yeah, eight eight black sweaters. Eight Canucks defensemen. Travis Dermott not with the group after leaving practice yesterday, uh, with what appeared to be a uh, you know a upper body injury of some kind. He was helped to the room uh, with by medical staff. Uh, additionally, looks like Bo Horvat's line uh, no longer features Curtis Lazar. Um, not Lazar is on the ice i believe but i'll need to confirm that uh looks like horvat is playing with hoaglander and pod colson today uh while Petterson gets a look with linus carlson and andre kuzmenko so uh some changes uh to vancouver's lines all told and in fact you know now that i'm getting a better look at it it does not look to me like curtis lazar is on the ice either so that's some of my quick takeaways as uh, as the Canucks players step on the ice and get set to begin practice.
0: Yeah, so we'll just give a quick kind of uh, availability update here. Uh, first of all, by the way, Canucks hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment, your Kubota All-Star team, avenuemachinery.ca, douglaslakeequipment.com. Tyler Myers is back on the ice. He missed yesterday. Bruce Boudreaux said it was a non-COVID sickness. Uh, Travis Durbin, as you said, left practice yesterday. After the, the skate, Boudreau said it was a kind of a precautionary move after he took a hit. He is not on the ice today, so we'll hope to learn more uh, from Bruce Boudreau later today about what exactly Dermott's situation is. And then, as you said, Curtis Lazar, not present either. And, of course, that's in addition to Brock Besser, who, who is, uh, underwent surgery earlier this week and is out for uh, at least a few weeks, and Ilya Mikheyev, who yesterday we learned... Uh, from Bruce Boudreau is week to week. So,
1: again, another unexpected Kurti- absence. Curtis Kurt- Lazar. Curtis Lazar is in fact here. All right, I, I, I've caught him. He's he is wearing, <laughs> he is wearing the blue practice sweater. So false alarm there. Uh, Bo Horvat, Vasily Podkolzin, Niels Hoglander, and Curtis Lazar all in blue, suggesting that at least one of those three, and it's not Bo Horvat, <laughs> it's not Vasily Podkolzin. And it's probably not Curtis Lazar, so Niels Hoaglander may be an extra today, uh, which would sort of pump the brakes on, on some of the momentum that you know we, we'd felt and the organization felt that he generated over the first week of camp. I'll let you know when they take line rushes. So that's very interesting, and the
0: other thing that stands out to me there was uh, Linus Carlson skating with uh, Elias Pettersson and Andre Kuzmenko. And I believe yesterday he was... Uh, an extra on that line, kind of rotating in as a potential top six type of extra with a little bit of offensive upside. You know, I wouldn't, I would not read into Carlson being with Pedersen and Kuzmenko and Hoaglander potentially being an extra farther down the lineup. I would not look at that and say, oh, well, Carlson has leapt over Niels Hoaglander because everything we've seen so far from training camp and preseason has been that Niels Hoaglander, you know, clearly, clearly stating his case as a a full-time NHL player and with Carlson, there's been some nice moments, but there's also been some some pretty obvious flaws in the game that you would want to see corrected, right? He has looked to me like a top of the lineup AHL player more than an NHL player so far. So I, I'm wondering if this is a combination of one, maybe, you know, you see enough potential in Carlson that you want to get him a look with some offensively inclined players to see what he can do in that type of environment. And also maybe you want to just experiment a little bit with Niels Hoaglander in different spots in the lineup, okay? We had him, in, we had him with Pedersen and Kuzmenko in the really super high skill, fun line. You know, we talked about it yesterday, how enjoyable that line just looks on paper. Drancer, you got that look yesterday. Maybe you want to try him uh, with a more defensive, kind of uh, a different look with Colson and, and Horvat today. That's kind of my just very first blush, instant reaction to the little bit of line juggling we're seeing from Bruce Boudreau today.
1: Yeah, and it also could be about who's playing preseason, right? Yep. Uh, you've got, by the way, Kyle Burrows playing on the left side of Tyler Myers here, and um, Niels Hoaglander is in fact the extra on the blue line, and also in the absence of Dermott, the Canucks are still playing. Oliver Ekman, Larson, and Hughes together so drag the puck here for a second for me Jamie while yeah, I no get problem. this tweeted
0: out so that's very interesting and I'll, I'll just run down the, the lineup situation as I understand it uh, from Drancer so you, you still have a top line with JT Miller, Tanner Pearson and Connor Garland on what looks like you're kind of Second line, I guess, although obviously it gets pretty murky. Uh, you have Pedersen, uh, Kuzmenko, and Linus Carlson skating together. In that other middle six line, it's Horvat with Pod Colson, and then Curtis Lazar and Niels Hoaglander. Hoaglander kind of the extra there. And I imagine that means the fourth line of Jason Dickinson, Dakota Joshua, Phil DiGiuseppe still together. And just quickly, what we heard from Dranser on the defensive pairings uh, at practice at UBC Quinn Hughes and OEL still skating together with Quinn Hughes on the right side. Tyler Myers back on the ice after missing it yesterday with a non-COVID sickness. He's on the right side with Kyle Burrows, of course, a natural righty on the left side. And then it sounds like Jack Rathbone uh, still still with Luke Shen, which has been very, very consistent throughout the process so far. Uh, And then Danny DeKaiser and Tucker Pullman remain together uh, at practice, as we saw yesterday as well. So there is your lineup update fresh From Canucks practice again of the players who were missing yesterday, Tyler Myers is back. Travis Dermott not on the ice after he left practice uh, as a precaution yesterday. So we'll get we'll get you the updates as they come there as we await uh, Dranser rejoining the
1: conversation. I'm always here. I'm always here. here. I just uh, I needed to get a probably a better look at a couple things. I I think I'm going to have to concede this to Batch. (laughs) I. uh, I, I missed a couple things while doing live radio. Turns hey, out this is uh, multitasking. Maybe a little too much for I, your guy.
0: I did my best. I did my best to rag the puck. I I, I thought I I thought I gave you enough time there, Dranser. But uh, oh, we'll, no, we'll we'll, try. we'll figure well. it out. You
1: did well. You did well. It was on me.
0: <laughs> we'll figure it out. Okay. So again, as we just kind of live react to the information and look, we're you know as as you said, Dranser, there's a million different things that be going on here, right? They've got another preseason game tomorrow that they want to uh, you know they'll, they'll want to put a specific lineup together for. Kyle Burrows jumping up and playing on his left side with Tyler Myers certainly stands out to me as pretty interesting. And keeping DeKaiser and Kuhlman together and Rathbone and Shen together in Travis Dermott's absence uh, sounds pretty interesting to me as well as we continue to kind of see a little bit of juggling. and, And as I said to Batch, you know, maybe a little bit of uncertainty about what the optimal shape of this defense looks like. You know, Kyle Burrows is a guy that looked like he had fallen down the pecking order a little bit, and maybe that's still the case, but... He's also a guy that you can trust. You can say, okay, we know what we're going to get if we throw him on his left side and and put him with Tyler Myers.
1: You know, I need to take a better look at this. The defense is switching up as we go here, and I'm not 100% certain that I've seen – well, no, Tucker Pullman's there. I just haven't seen him take a turn. So I never really saw a DeKaiser-Pullman pair, Okay, and then the defense has now been switching it up. So Shen's now going with – Myers I've seen Burroughs go with Myers um here we go okay so Pullman and De DeKaiser have stayed together and Myers seems to have guys rotating all right through although he took his first time through with Burroughs so yeah eight defensemen on the ice bunch of forwards Niels Amon and Niels Hoaglander appear to be the extras
0: okay there we go so we we're, we're taking it in live uh with Dranzer on location there and as he said uh trying to multitask and you know look With Myers having rotating partners, I mean, that suggests to me that that's kind of a direct result of Travis Dermott not being available today and that maybe if Travis Dermott was there, you would see him in that spot next uh, to Tyler Myers, which, you know, I think is interesting because I don't think that's something we've seen throughout the course of of training camp or exhibition so far, Drancer.
1: Yeah, and it sort of poses the question, and one of the sort of remaining things that I, I don't think we know yet Uh, which is, like, who is this team's seventh defenseman, you know? Mm -hmm. Is it DeKaiser? Is it Burroughs? Who exactly has the lead in that particular uh, race here? Because, you know, that could be very high leverage, especially if this team decides to pick a defender up off waivers in shaping uh, what this team looks like, you know, when they get to their numbers on opening day.
0: Yeah, it's as I've said a couple of times, the kind of the depth chart past Oel Hughes and Myers for me on defense is, is pretty murky. And I know I would have Jack Rathbone as part of that mix, in you know four, five, six, and I'd have Travis Dermott there. And because Rathbone and Shen have been paired together, that means Shen is there as well. I think we're starting to see that sort of same hierarchy develop in the eyes of the coaching staff, just based on. The, the opportunities they've been given to Jack Rathbone. I think the fact that Rathbone and Shen have been stapled together bodes really well uh, for the future of that pairing as well and for it getting into games early in the season. And as you said, now maybe the race starts to be, you know, pending Travis Dermott's availability. The race starts to be more about, okay, who's that seventh guy? Who's that? Who's that eighth guy if they're going to carry eight as well? And, you know, when you as, need to carry
1: eight yeah. for this team. Like this team, in my view, should almost always carry eight. Although you could carry seven at home now since Abbotsford's basically local, um, on the road you need to carry eight. 100% especially when you're on the East Coast and that's where they start the season. So I would expect them to carry eight at the outset and, uh, and we'll see where it goes. And that sort of ups the stakes for, you know, what we're looking at in terms of Burroughs and in terms of DeKaiser in particular because I think we feel pretty confident about the pecking order beyond them, right? Like the first seven, I think we know. It's, it's really that eighth guy uh, where I, I feel like the battle lines are being drawn a little more clearly than perhaps they had been earlier in training camp.
0: And at this point, you know, they've given, they've given Danny DeKaiser a lot of opportunity, right? And he will continue to get opportunity. You know, I'm not, I'm not saying that, that that tryout is over or that they should move on already. But I also, I haven't seen anything that makes me... Would, would make me lean towards having him on the roster over Kyle Burroughs, right? That is still ultimately where I would go because of what Kyle Burroughs did for this team last year. And that's not a slight at Danny DeKaiser, but I just haven't necessarily seen that to, to kind of justify signing him to a contract. And, you know, as we've talked about a lot, Drancer, the issue with Kyle Burroughs is if you're not carrying him as one of your eight, uh, he has to go through waivers. And as a, a right-handed defenseman with some versatility, some toughness, all of those things on a very reasonable salary. He's a guy that would be pretty coveted around the league and not necessarily a guarantee at all to get through waivers. So it was very interesting when training camp started in Whistler to see Kyle Burrows kind of maybe being outside of the top eight looking in. But I'm also not surprised at all uh, to see him kind of working his way back into the mix. There's a lot of reasons uh, that you would want to keep Kyle Burrows around.
1: Yeah, here's an interesting thing too. Canucks are practicing with three goaltenders today. That's not something you often see because there's only two nets. <laughs> Simple math. Um, so Colin Delia and Spencer Martin down at the rink that I'm uh, that I'm side of the rink that I'm sitting at uh, appear to be switching off between drills as the Canucks go through you know what, what's effectively like a rush drill and then some work tipping pucks, just some just some fitness like get a sweat and and tip some pucks to begin practice sort of work. Uh, but yeah. Goaltenders are switching off. All three goalies on the ice for Canucks practice today. And to
0: you, does that speak to the existence of some sort of at least theoretical battle still existing for the the backup spot? Uh, you know, we've all obviously have Spencer Martin there, but they, they brought Colin Delia in, for a reason. Or is it is it more? I don't know. Something something less, uh, or something more mundane than that, Drancer?
1: I'd probably lean mundane, but I do think there's been an organizational sense that you know, uh, Archer Silov's, like, if he was in the mix, would have outplayed the other goaltenders who aren't Thatcher Demko at camp, right? So yeah. um, the fact that I was hearing stuff like that suggests to me that maybe they want to see a little bit more. Uh, might, might, be a, might be a kick in the pants. Might be that uh, they want Martin to, or Delia to watch the other goaltenders and spend some time chatting with Ian Clark. Uh, might be that the goalies have a sort of plan for after practice to do a bunch of extra technical work. You know, hard to know, we'll ask Boudreaux, but very rare. It's a very rare thing that you see three goalies at a practice.
0: 650-650 uh, is the Dunbar-Lumber text line. Just some some questions and thoughts coming in about, uh, you know, various things that we're seeing on the ice here at UBC. This one comes in. Question for Drance, uh How has Arstic Baines looked at training camp with Besser and potentially Mikhaev out for the beginning of the season? Does he have a shot at making the opening night lineup? And I think it speaks volumes that, you know, the practices we see today and we saw yesterday at UBC, you have kind of the clear-cut, pretty obvious NHL forwards, and then the two extras skating with those forwards are are Linus Carlson and uh, Niels Amon, right? And Arshtie Bain's part of the other group, so that's not a a, a slight against his game or a mark that uh, management has been disappointed or anything like that, but it does show you kind of where he exists in the pecking order and where he will exist in the pecking order, and in all likelihood those other guys are going to get uh any nhl opportunities that arise before Arshdeep baines does
1: which by the way is a good thing right i mean the thing that i liked about Arshdeep baines was that he thinks the game a step ahead right he, he's such a smart player and the way that that expresses itself in terms of how he plays the game is through a variety of like really clever spin moves um where he's both faking the opponent out and making the right play or even a, the better than right play Uh, all at once and he he makes those decisions really fast in penticton he was able to dominate using those moves and then he gets the whistler and he's trying them on bo horvat and bo horvat's picking his pocket (laughs) because that's what bo horvat does right like some of those things are going to work against some nhl players but against top nhl players they're not going to work right like he's going to need to figure out what he can do in the pro game what of his moves what in his arsenal of tricks will translate to the pro level and the ahl is a perfect place for him to do that there'll be a ton of opportunity down there i'd assume that he'll be a big part of the abbotsford Canucks power play and you know the spot that neil Amon and linus carlson are in and these are guys who've played multiple years of professional hockey albeit overseas you know like you get into the lineup you're playing eight minutes You know, you're definitely not playing power play like you're not (laughs) getting the opportunities that our Baines probably needs if he's going to hit uh, the ceiling that, you know, I think he has. Like, I'm convinced based on what I saw, and especially because there's nothing I like to bet on more than hockey intelligence. Right. If you have a hockey high hockey IQ, that's going to impress me a fair bit. Um, Baines has that. I think it's good that he's not in this group. I don't know that he's going to be a call-up option to begin the year or, or an injury reinforcement option to begin the year. If he gets to that point late in the season, that would be a huge win for him and for Canucks player development.
0: Yeah, I think organizationally, right, the goal is that you have enough enough legitimate depth in front of players like that that they they can go into that kind of ideal uh, development environment like Abbotsford and, and not worried about, okay, hey, we got to thrust this guy into the NHL maybe before he's ready. Uh, because we we don't have the depth in front of him so yeah it, it's it's not a, a negative sign whatsoever about our Baines. it's just a reality of the players that are ahead of him on the depth chart right now 650 650 is the dunbar lumber text line you can keep getting your thoughts and questions coming in i, I do want to talk a little bit about uh ilya Mikhaev and and the fact that he is not a practice and he's being listed at week to week transfer. We we talked a lot yesterday about Brock Besser, what his absence means for the team. I believe on Monday uh, as well, when that news came out, we weren't exactly sure what to make of Ilya Mikheyev missing practice yesterday. And then Boudreaux said he's, he's considered week to week at the moment. So look, we don't know. There's, there's every possibility that Ilya Mikheyev makes his way back into the lineup, practices with the team, and is, is there on opening night when they start the regular season, right? That, that absolutely uh, is a possibility that exists. It's also a possibility that exists that he misses a little bit of time. We don't know right now. Week to week could mean a lot of different things, right? As we've all seen and all learned in the past. And, you know, obviously, you hear that Mikhaev is, is absent right now. And I think the first place your mind is going to go is the penalty kill because that was such an area of emphasis that the team needed to improve uh, after last season. Mikhaev is so good there. He, he's just such a clean fit. We need help on the penalty kill. We got this ace penalty killer plug and play. Let's go. He's going to be a huge part of what we do there. But I also think about, you know, how much we've heard from players, from the coach about how they want the identity of this team at five on five to be all about forechecking, aggression, closing on the uh, the opposing team quickly, right? Getting the puck in deep and then going out, uh, going in and retrieving it. And Ilya Mikheyev is a really clean fit in those ways, too. So you know, all of a sudden, if you start to, to talk about potentially missing some time with William McKayev it's not just the penalty kill uh, that's potentially impacted. It's also like they were counting on him to be kind of a crucial piece of building that identity uh, for the first full season under Bruce Boudreau here.
1: Well, I'd add this. I'd add that in selecting to come to Vancouver and playing here, right, McKayev also prioritized the opportunity on off. Right? The fact that he was likely to play top six minutes, premium minutes, as the organization has put it, um, with really high-skilled players. Well, Mikhaev himself is almost the perfect third-liner, right? He's got to prove that he can complement skilled players, in my view anyway, particularly given that you know, in 500 minutes with John Tavares, uh, that line scored significantly less. With Makayev as the sort of third guy riding with Nylander and John Tavares, uh, far less with Makayev on the left wing than it did with, you know, Alex Galchenyuk and Alex Kerfoot and Zach Hyman and Michael Bunting and like some of those guys are star players, right? Like Zach Hyman, no one, you know, that's fine. Zach Hyman's really good, but you know, Alex Galchenyuk <laughs> shouldn't be <laughs> performing. That line shouldn't be better with Alex Galchenyuk than it was with Ilya Makayev. Like he's got something to prove there one wonders uh, and, and although that wonder is perhaps muted a bit because linus carlson is playing with petterson today but one wonders if niels hoaglander really seizes that opportunity um could micaiah end up on the third line when he returns right like could that be just where he ends up that would be great for the canucks in terms of depth but it wouldn't be necessarily what everyone was hoping for when they signed him right and the margins are just so fine at this time of year and in this league between a guy getting a shot, taking advantage of it and going on to become Alex Burrows, and a guy who just never gets there and is a third liner.
0: Well, I think it's a huge, you're right. It's a huge deal from just Mikhaev individually, like from his perspective, because one of the things we noticed and we were monitoring really closely in Whistler was that you didn't necessarily see that instant chemistry pop with Elias Patterson and Ilya Mikheyev and, and throw in Andre Kuzmenko on that line as well, right? There were obvious, you know, I don't want to say problems, but it, especially when they were set up in the offensive zone, it wasn't necessarily a clean fit. You didn't look at it and say, oh, wow, those are guys who are immediately on the same page. Now, they've only had a very brief time to build that chemistry, but if Ilya Mikheyev misses a couple weeks here, you know, leading into the regular season, well, that's time very valuable time in the preseason, in in training camp every day on the practice sheet where you can try to build some of that chemistry. And you know, I see a player who I still believe can really help the Canucks, but also one that hasn't necessarily found his niche in the lineup at five on five, right? You're still waiting to see, okay, this is the ideal spot for him to fit in and really help the team. Look, as you said, maybe it ends up being more of a third line defensively oriented role. Maybe it ends up being, you know, alongside Bo Horvat, who we know. Uh, can play that role as well. But it is kind of a tough blow for the team, but also for Mikheyev. He's kind of behind the eight ball now as he tries to adapt to a new team and figure out, okay, what's the best way? Where where am I going to fit in this lineup that does have a fair amount of depth up and down it?
1: Well, and I'm sure there's someone listening in their car who just yelled at their radio and said, he hasn't found his fit at five on five. They haven't played a game yet, right? Um, But it's more, it's less about his fit in Vancouver for me than it is his fit in the league. And the reason for me, it sort of goes beyond just uh, looking at what it means for Mikhaev individually. It also, you know, goes to what he expected, right? Like, there was a fair bit of noise around Mikhaev in Toronto that he wanted those larger opportunities. And he'll admit that if you talk to him, right? Yeah, I want to see what I can do. And everyone does. Of, of course. course. That's, and, that's
0: pretty common, right? Most guys want but, to get that next chance up the ladder.
1: But that spilled over, like, the public was aware of it, right? Like, reporters, people around the team yeah. were aware. Like, Mikhaev wants to play higher up the lineup. And so, you know, there's, a, there's an extent to which this could be a plot line to watch. Uh, you never want to see a guy who you just signed to a long deal with big money, right? Four and a half, 4.75 million is not huge st- superstar money, but it's big money, right? It's a big commitment. Um, you know, y- you don't want that relationship either to begin behind the eight ball. Not that it will, but... You know, he is going to be playing catch up on his return. And that sort of certainly raises the prospect, particularly considering that, you know, I don't know that Mikhaev was a slam dunk, is going to be a contributor in this top six forward group player anyway.
0: Uh, Torgy texts in, you're jumping the gun with Mikhaev. He's here for four years. He'll be fine. He'll find a fit. And yeah, of course, look, they signed
1: him. They didn't just sign him for the month of October. He's good defensively and a sick penalty killer. Of yeah, course, he'll find yeah. a fit. And so Every team can great. use the, that guy.
0: But as you said, also, the player and the team were hoping to find a fit for him higher up the line. Right? And all I'm saying is this potentially delays that process, which can be tricky. It's not as simple as, hey, you put him with Elias Pettersson and Andre Kuzmenko, and they're going to be magic right away together. right? There's often that well, and, that process of building and,
1: that fit. And there's been tension between what? Makayev thinks he is right, and what he's proven to be in the NHL already in his young career, and the injury that he sustained raises the specter that that could happen here too. That's all we're saying. Yeah, that's all I'm saying, anyway.
0: Uh, Keith Texton, isn't Makayev just a more expensive Mason Raymond? Lol. Hey, Mason Raymond was a good player, <laughs> underrated player, <laughs> really good player. I like Mason really Raymond, really
1: good player. Anyways, but, but but you know there is a type of player who can really help you win at two and a half million, and maybe not so much at four and a half million, right? And some guys can make the leap. We saw Blake Coleman make the leap in Calgary, right, where he was still absolutely full value for for what he is. Um, That's, you know, that's the task ahead for McCoy.
0: No doubt about it. 650-650 is the Dunbar-Lumber text line. Lots of good thoughts coming in. Uh, Some questions about Linus Carlson, which we will uh, try to get to on the other side, plus more, the latest from the Canucks as they continue to practice on the ice at UBC. It is Canucks hour here on your home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to Canucks Hour. Final segment of the show here on Sportsnet 650. Another extended bonus edition during Canucks preseason. Canucks Hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment. Your Kubota All-Star team. AvenueMachinery.ca. DouglasLakeEquipment.com. I am live from the Kintex studio. Drancer is on location at UBC where the Canucks remain on the ice. How would you evaluate uh, day two of the Yuan Location uh, experiment here, Drancer. All right, we'll get Dranser back uh, and connected momentarily here. I guess that answers the question of how <laughs> we would evaluate day two of the experience uh, so far. Maybe a little bit of technical hiccups there, but uh, we will reconnect with Drancer as soon as we can. I can hear the background noise, so he's there, but uh, I cannot hear him for whatever reason. We will try to fix that. ASAP as soon as possible. Uh, we were talking about Ilya Mikheyev just before the break. And by the way, 650-650, you can get your thoughts into the Dunbar Lumber text message inbox. Uh, we were talking about Ilya Mikheyev, and, you know, I was saying this is kind of a tough injury for him. Obviously, it's always tough when a player gets injured, but specifically, you're the key free agent signing of a team in the offseason. Deal with term, right? You're, you're coming, and, and part of the... Attraction to this team, as Drance explained, is, you know, not just that they're willing to pay me, but they see me as potentially fitting a bigger role uh, than I would played with Toronto, right? Hey, not just a penalty killer, not just a third line four checker. Those things are really important, but also potentially a guy who can play uh, up the lineup a little bit. And uh, Taze5 says, uh, Bruce went on record saying he always thought Mikheyev should have gotten more ice time in Toronto to start at least. I think they'll play second-line minutes. Uh, they'll play him second-line minutes, whether it's with Pedersen or Bo Horvat. Uh, yeah, look, he's going to get for his sure, opportunities. For sure. He's going to get his it's, opportunities. And, you know, he's going to we get the As we welcome Drancer back in. Yeah. Like, Sorry about that. No, no, no. It's
1: all right. They, uh, yeah, no. I mean, he's going to get his opportunities. The question is, does he fit there? Like, does it work, right? Because, you know, they can say oh. that he, they thought he should have gotten more of those opportunities in Toronto, but he got 500 minutes with Tavares and Nylander. Like, it's not like they never, that you know, that, that happened. That's fact. So it's not like he hasn't had those opportunities in the past. It's just that he hasn't been able to seize them. And, you know, now uh, he was going to get a long look and a consistent look with Pedersen and Kuzmenko. The injury has caused that plan um, to be scuttled for now. Uh, he's week to week here, so I'm not expecting to see him play against Seattle, either Thursday or Saturday, but hopefully next week uh, he'll be able to get those reps in again and and get to work building you know chemistry with skilled players that you know which is something that's just eluded him to this point in his career. Keith, that's text. just that's just what's that's just true. Like I don't yeah. know what else to say.
0: Yeah, no, hundred um, percent. Keith texts in. What could Linus Carlson do this season? Is he a legit rookie threat to make the team? We had a couple other questions come in as well, and just to kind of run down the lineup situation of forward again the the interesting new wrinkle is that carlson skating uh, on a line with Elias petterson in at center and andre kuzmenko on the left wing that had been where niels hoaglander was skating yesterday hoaglander now uh mixing in with a unit as an extra uh that includes horvat and pod Colson and curtis lazar the other player there so look you see that and that's a, a really really nice opportunity anytime you get to play on Elias Petterson's wing, you're feeling pretty good uh, about that. What that says about you and the chances you have to make some plays and impress people. Having said that, if if the Canucks were going, look again, we're in this situation where the two kind of extra forwards uh, beyond the obvious NHL guys are Linus Carlson and Neil Zaman. I think if the if and when the Canucks are in a situation where they need to call on one of those players, to this point. Neil Zaman has separated himself just because of when you listen to what specifically the team praises about him, it's his defensive ability, his attention to details, his professionalism, right? And when you just think about calling a player up, potentially, again, this is down the road. I I, I don't think either one is going to be in the mix uh, to start the season. But when you just think of calling a player up from the AHL t- for their first taste of NHL action, especially if you're competing for a playoff spot, I would see them leaning towards Niels Amon because he brings those other qualities he has the skating ability as well whereas with Carlson much like you were saying uh, about Archie Baines kind of the ideal situation is for him to get that chance to acclimate in Abbotsford while he works on some of those details
1: yeah I I'd add too like Linus Carlson's pace has looked like an issue to me throughout training camp um Amon's a really strong skater. I actually think there's a, there's a world where Amon could put himself into the mix, into that fourth line mix over the balance of training camp. Uh, Linus Carlson's getting a really big look today. And, you know, you love to see that. It's it's still early enough at training camp that it makes sense to experiment, particularly with a guy who you see as a call-up candidate for a top six forward line, right? Whether or not it's a guy who's really going to threaten to break camp with the team or, or just get that shot um you know it, it makes sense to see what he can do and begin to build chemistry with line mates that he could really play with right because that's sort of the distinction right carlson to me would be a call-up option if you need a a guy with some offensive pop and if you need a guy to play eight to ten minutes and maybe pitch on you know, on the penalty kill in a bottom of the lineup role it's going to be Niels Amon. um carlson's speed and pace again are are things that have stood out to me as you know being well below average for an nhl skater um the skill level is evident the size is evident and he's got a really good feel for making plays in traffic or with checkers hanging all over him there there's something there's there's something there there's a lot to like but i i'm not sure if the pace is going to play uh at the nhl level without some improvements so i think he'd be best suited to being in abbotsford and before we make too much out of you know niels and, and linus carlson's opportunities here you know it's worth noting there's two forwards injured yep. right i mean there's two forwards injured what, what, where I think they've sort of established themselves as having a pretty interesting place in the pecking order of or the depth chart at the moment is they look like you know they've sort of moved ahead of some guys like perhaps a Will Lockwood, right? Like perhaps a Arshdeep Baines or a Sh- perhaps Sheldon one of those, Dries, potentially a Sheldon right? Dries, yeah. right? As a guy who might be a first man up from Abbotsford in the event of injury, uh, Carlson and Amon, the opportunities they're getting at camp. To me, that's what they say. It's like these guys could be first call-up options now, uh, but I would be pretty surprised to see either break camp with the team uh, with Amon having slightly shorter odds, in my view, than Linus Carlson. Yeah,
0: you just count up the bodies, right? And there's 14 forwards there today, plus, as you said, the two injuries, which are obvious, obviously important parts of the team in Besser and Mikheyev. So you kind of slot the 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 final two guys at this practice as you know 15th, 16th on the forward, depth chart. And and again, we could see how that develops uh, throughout the course of the season. But hey, look, you usually need your 15th and 16th forwards to get through the season, right? So there is a chance that we end up seeing them at some point here if they impress uh, the coaching staff with the look they're getting right now and they continue to develop in Abbotsford and all of that. Again, 650-650 is the Dunbar-Lumber text line. I wanted to return to a conversation and expand on it a little bit we were having in the first segment of the show, and you can go back and you can check it out on the podcast if you missed it. But Elliot Friedman reporting yesterday that uh, the NHL is is giving teams some very very early, very preliminary future salary cap projections. I won't run through all the numbers uh, because I did that earlier in the show. Basically, but the NHL
1: ahead. the NHL is bullish. Yeah, the league only the only the, it only ever gets out when the league is. Uh, promoting a bullish salary cap projection. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so the the kind of headline
0: is over the next four seasons, including this one. Uh, after the flat cap era is over and the the really modest increases are over by 2025 and 20 the 20. 20- 25 26 season Uh, we could be again if all goes well and yada 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 we gave you a bunch of reasons (laughs) to be skeptical early in the show but if all goes well you could be looking at a salary cap that rises by uh, almost 10 million dollars to the 92 million dollar range now
1: nhl salary cap updates like the salary cap projection updates that get into public are basically like the hockey version of the stonks meme it's just like (laughs) it's just like stonks but that's what the nhl does like whenever um, we'll see
0: Whenever uh, a political campaign releases a poll, right, like an internal poll comes out, it, oh, it, yeah, it, yeah. it invariably shows their candidate way ahead, <laughs> way ahead of any other poll that's been released. Like, there's a reason it's be it's it's getting right. out there for sure. Oh, so uh, yes. Uh,
1: and coaches never cite like, well, our in house model says we're way worse than that. <laughs> 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 that, that I really hope that happens someday. Right? Be
0: like, so we're good. on an eight game winning streak. Man, it's great. we like this guy just scored a hat track, but you know what? I actually think this team sucks. <laughs> our in house model, not high oh. on this team.
1: <laughs> hey, if, That'll be the if day. that ever if that ever happens Jamie, I'm out of a job. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. All right. Well, anyways, um,
0: so yes, bullish, very very bullish salary cap protections uh, projections from the NHL and there are reasons to be skeptical and the one of the things I wanted to get into. So okay, you you hear that and we're talking 3-4 years down the road. So obviously you start thinking about what does that mean for future salary negotiations? Okay, how how are they going to be able to address holes in their roster Not for this year, obviously, but farther down the road. But as I kind of mentioned in passing in that first segment, Drancer, you know, one of the most interesting things to me is it's not just implications further down the road, right? They are currently involved in negotiations for a contract extension with an extremely central figure on the team, the captain Bo Horvat. And whether you buy these salary cap projections or not, I mean, just the very fact of the uncertainty around them is going to have some sort of impact on the long-term extension that you're trying to work out with your captain. And that uncertainty, again, just adds a a totally other layer of complexity onto these. And I'm fascinated to see, you know, look, the Canucks aren't the only team in this situation, but I'm really fascinated to see how players like Bo Horvat attempt to navigate and attempt to kind of position themselves in the most advantageous way uh, because of all of this uncertainty and the potential for the cap to spike, but also how teams navigate it when you're dealing with, look, it hasn't started to go up yet. We don't even know if it's actually going to go up, but we have to at least factor in the potential that it does when we're working on these already very complex negotiations right now.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting factor to price in. I think, you know, you can see how teams already do this. Like JT Miller's signing bonus structure, for example, disappears on the potential lockout year, in the potential lockout year, right? So teams do account as best they can and players do, too, for exactly how, you know, a a contract will look in the event of, I I suppose, the Black Swan event of a lockout or Mm -hmm. or something like that. But, you know, I think the I, I, I always wondered why anyone would sign a long term deal in that first pandemic year right like when barzell did the long-term de- or the the short-term deal and when petterson did the short-term deal like i thought everyone was going to do short-term bridge deals because why would you lock yourself in forever in a in a flat cap environment like the one that the nhlpa and the nhl agreed to like why wouldn't you wait and try to be timofey mozgov why wouldn't you go for it why wouldn't you try for the Mozgov? and uh and so that held to some extent but then last you know, I think 12 months uh, that kind of got undone. Teams started snapping up a lot of these guys, especially younger guys, less proven guys with long-term deals. Like I think teams caught on to, hey, we better go long because we're negotiating in a artificially restrained environment at the moment. And so, you know, teams started to get really good valuations or, or valuations that could age extraordinarily well in the event that the salary cap goes up the way that the league is projecting now. Um, you know, it's it's too bad the Canucks didn't do that in full, but they did do it at least with Demko and Hughes, so that's, you know, fine, it's decent, right? Uh, 66% is a C, but it's not bad. And uh, and so that's sort of where we land. <laughs> it's a it's a passing
0: grade at least, transfer. That's that's yeah. the key. It's a passing grade.
1: Um Well, and I mean those deals aren't like so long. That you, uh, you know what I mean. It's only five years on each, right? So yeah, well, five years not... for
0: Demko, six years for Hughes. Yeah. yeah,
1: yeah. So it's not. I mean, that's not like an A plus relative to the sort of benefit. Like if Stutzla hits for Ottawa or Norris or Cairo or Rob Thomas or I mean, if those if those players continue on their trajectory and the cap explodes, uh, they're going to be laughing.
0: Yeah, and we were talking earlier about, you know, which teams are kind of poised to do the Golden State Warrior thing where they have a really good contract situation and then they can exploit it even more when the salary cap does to go go up. You know, you mentioned the Devils and then with Stuchel's name, the the one that instantly came to my mind as well was the Ottawa Senators, right? I know everyone's hyped about the
1: Senators for this season. I still think uh, there's some tinkering. I'm waiting. That, yeah. I'm waiting to unveil my Ottawa Senators fade. I'm yes. so low on that team. I think that's going to be... I think that team's might be the most overhyped team certainly in this country but like maybe in the entire league going into this next season. But I do think as you mentioned like the bet on
0: Tim Stutzla and maybe the ability to lock uh and, and on Norris as well the you know they have that kind of cost certainty locked in and if those players hit and and this is a major end with the uh with the Ottawa Senators organization and they remain willing to spend as the salary cap increases they could be really well positioned as well. And just the last thing on the Beau Horvat side of it, you know, I, I think probably what we're going to see the dynamic in, in negotiations happening right now is teams trying to keep one foot at least in the flat cap era while agents are trying to push, every, push the NHL out of that era, right? And say, no, 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 that's over. That's in the past. We're working in a new world of, of player valuations. And, you know, that's the kind of thing. It's certainly not an insurmountable disagreement, right? But it can, I would imagine kind of increase the gap in initial offerings, right? If you're not even, it's one thing to be having these negotiations when everyone kind of has a pretty rough idea of where the salary cap is going to go, but if you are working from a, a fundamental disagreement about even that, it's going to make the gap that you have to find a way to bridge in the course of those negotiations potentially even more uh, significant than it would be in other situations.
1: It's a good point, and you know, the fact is, is that you can't say we live in this era when you don't. Right? There's no, device, there's no device to make the annual average value of a player's deal jump up and down with increases in the cap, right? You get to where you get to. So, you know, uh, at the end of the day, agents can say what they want, but it's impossible to sign a guy to a deal where, you know, two, the next two years of it are still going to be living in a flat cap world, um, as if that's not true, as if that's not the case, right? Like no, no general manager is has enough job security to be like well this will look (laughs) good in three years you know like it needs to look good throughout uh, or at least be defensible throughout right so you know I I think what we're where, where the inflationary pressure comes is when the cap actually increases when that actually happens and uh hopefully it's soon right the league is more fun and salaries are like players are paid in a more fair manner right I mean what was the Nathan McKinnon signs the richest contract in history, right? He's now he's now paid 10 million less than Danilo Gallinari It's just like okay Um, You know, I think I think the league is in a better spot when the cap is high for a variety of reasons I think there's uh, ability to make more trades ability to sign guys for more eye-popping numbers There's better strategy teams will improve faster Um, everything is better when there's cap space in the system. Well, the
0: the ability to make moves is the big one for me, right? And we were front and center to witness it from a Canucks perspective this summer where we were all expecting Trader Jim to come in and shake things up. And, you know, maybe part of it was they they turned out not to be quite as eager to do it. But I think a large part of it was there's no money. Nobody wants to take on deals. It's impossible to make moves right now. And just smashing that kind of uh, stasis that exists around the NHL right now, again, It doesn't mean everything's easy it doesn't mean all your team building problems are solved but if the cap going up can solve that issue specifically yeah that's huge not just for the Canucks,
1: but just from an entertainment perspective transfer let's see some trades man yeah well for sure and this league needs it so badly right the other the other leagues are well certainly the other really popular north american leagues plus soccer are 24 7 right Mm -hmm. 12 months a year 365 days Um, Making news, right? There's news, there's players, uh, you know, tweeting outrageously, there's trade speculation, there's trade speculation that the players themselves are, you know, uh, helping develop by liking stuff on Instagram or changing their profile pictures or tweeting (laughs) at fans. I mean, there's just so much more going on. Um, in that frame and it helps like it helps every Monday you'll, you can see it in the NBA right like every Monday it's Shams or it's Woj and there's an article and it sort of sets the weeks of speculation right and sometimes the trades don't happen you think about Kevin Durant and the, and the Brooklyn Nets but that's months of storylines and now it's going to raise the stakes when the Brooklyn Nets return to play right like every time the Brooklyn Nets play it's like a referendum on the entire organization. That's good. That's good. That makes them far more exciting and interesting to watch and follow. And, you know, the NHL needs more of that drama, more of that player movement, more of those leaks and rumors. Like, that all helps grow the sport far more than the NHL offseason news cycle, which is just a parade of terrible news stories. Yeah, and a a parade of just very mundane, very mundane signings and trades, right? It gets hard to support it. Right, yep. That's where the NHL has been at, and uh, they need to change that narrative quickly, as uh, does this team.
0: Final uh, final few minutes of the show here on Canucks Hour uh, as we turn you over to the People's Show at the top of the hour. 6.50, 6.50 again is the Dunbar text line, and uh, a few final thoughts and questions coming in. You know, we were talking about the depth chart up front and how maybe – Niels Amon, Linus Carlson, getting looks with the the kind of main group. Have they jumped over somebody like Will Lockwood and Kevin from Calgary Texted, what's happened to Lockwood? Uh, has he not looked good in camp? And, you know, my read on it, Drancer, is it's not so much about anything that's happened to Lockwood as much as the organization really prioritized going out and finding players that kind of fit at that same level. Not that there's the same style of player as he is necessarily, but fit at that, you know, Fringe NHL, top of the lineup, AHL spot. They, they went out and they signed Carlson. They signed Nils Amon. They signed Archdeep Baines, right? They, they still have Phil DiGiuseppe around. They still have Sheldon Dries around. So it's not so much that Will Lockwood has done anything wrong, I don't think. You know, he hasn't necessarily stood out either. It's just it's a crowded field right now in, in that kind of niche on the roster in the organization
1: yeah uh well and you get to a point in your nhl career where you're either leveling up at an outrageous rate because you're bound for stardom in the league or you're getting passed by guys Mm -hmm. who are right i mean you have to think of it as a funnel right like only the very best get to move on only the very best get to play major minutes it's a cruel league and will lockwood has done absolutely nothing wrong in fact his game has developed but He doesn't really have that that next level scoring touch, and you know I think he has he. I don't think that he blew the team away in his cameo appearances last season, and there you go, you find yourself as a call up option. Now his story is not written, right? It's not over, but at some point you always have a guy like a Curtis Lazar, right? Who's a first round pick who didn't quite work out as a first round pick and figures out the defensive game, and he gets signed as a free agent and. All of a sudden you're further down the depth chart right that's how it works neil Amon gets signed and oh my goodness he's six foot three and one of the fastest guys on the team and plays good defense like oh my god i'm further down the depth chart like that's how this works it's a cruel league it's hard to make it and this is why the attrition rate on prospects are so high right you can't just look at a prospect and be like i'm hopeful he makes it because my team drafted him it's like you either watch the game and they're the, the game that's non-nhl level game and they're the best player on the ice and if they are, then maybe they have a chance to be a depth guy in the league. You know, like that's how hard it is to make this league. Uh that's just sort of the forces that Will Lockwood is up against at training camp at the moment. Just like, you know, in the past we've seen with Cole Lind and Jonah Gadjevich and on and on.
0: And you know, it's about upside as well, right? And you look, Will Lockwood, if there's a if the team needs a call-up in November or December, there's still every chance that he gets selected over a, a Linus Carlson or a Neil Amon. but those players also they have more potential. They have more of that upside and I think that in large part accounts, you know for why they're getting the chance uh, with the main group at training camp here, right? You're always going to be looking to see okay, who who has the bigger future? Who has the potential to move the needle for us more down the road? Again, it's not to say that Will Lockwood can't do that, but it's just there's competition there. There's valuable spots uh, that are, you know, up for grabs and you always have to be improving, always have to be showing that next gear. And, uh, again, I think the other two players that we're talking about just have more of that potential upside uh, to offer. Uh, that's going to do it for us today here on Canucks Hour. Again, Drancer was live at UBC Practice. Tomorrow, we will be live at Rogers Arena for the first time this season as the Canucks get set to host the Seattle Kraken in a preseason game. So really looking forward uh, to that one. The People's Show with Bick Nazar and myself, at least for an
2: hour. We'll see how it goes. That's coming up next. It's the home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650.